Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts' fortnightly podcast. On the show this week, the pensions regulator's annual funding statement really could have been replaced with a picture of a man shrugging, uh, given the theme was how much we don't know about the state of the world. Inflation, interest rates, post-COVID mortality, the war in Ukraine all have the potential to impact pension schemes, but nobody, including the regulator, seems to know quite how or why or to what extent, but we will see if our guests can do better. Next up, the UK's youngest ever accredited trustee has called on the pensions industry to embrace technology. Given government has had to fight to get a statement season through, that the pensions dashboard has been something of a headache to implement, it is not immediately clear to me that the industry is up for sending annual benefit statements on TikTok, but we will ask what more the sector can do in this area. And then finally, with the task force on climate-related financial disclosures rules now mandatory for large schemes and ever more focus being placed on each letter in ESG, we will close by asking what the future of ESG disclosure looks like beyond a headache, of course. I'm Benjamin Mercer, Senior Reporter for Pensions Experts, and I am joined today by Emily Goodridge, Managing Director at Cardano, and by Steve Goddard, Chief Executive of the Pension Playpen, and thank you both very much for joining me. We will kick off with the uh, Pensions Regulator's annual funding statement. And the watchword, as mentioned, was uncertainty, which surrounds inflation, interest rates, mortality, energy prices, economic growth, and a host of other factors each with a bearing on schemes going through tranche 17 valuations at the moment. And Emily, I will come to you first on this, if you don't mind. How much help is the annual funding statement, given that it tells us what we don't know? And does it tell us very much of what we do? You're you're quite right that there's a huge amount of uncertainty. And there's been so many things building on each other, it's hard to say what's going to happen next. So where we tend to focus is on how to deal with that uncertainty. Um, and that's a lot of the stuff that we've been saying for a while. It's it's really good to see the regulator focusing on, focusing on that approach as well. So firstly, accept that there's always going to be some uncertainty. We can't know everything. An ongoing scheme will always have risks. Covenant, for example, is the ultimate underpin for scheme risks. Uh, if Covenant fails, members probably suffer a shortfall. If Covenant doesn't fail, members probably get their benefits in full. But you can never know for sure what's going to happen with the Covenant. So don't be complacent. Don't assume everything's going to be OK. Don't be lazy and say it's too difficult to think about what's going to happen next. It's all about things like um, covenant risk management, scenario planning, being mindful of long term reliance on covenant and trying to bring that risk down. Excellent. And the regulator is is keen, obviously, to, to stress the importance of, of planning with businesses as well on, on the end of, of covenant and encouraging trustees to ask for business plans and and forecasts about the, the, the state of the business and how the business is coping with things like inflation, supply chain disruption as well, isn't it? Are businesses by and large forthcoming when trustees ask these kinds of questions or, or does it take a bit of nagging for trustees to get hold of the information they need? The relationship is is different in every situation. I'd say it takes time to build that good relationship and it's always worth investing in building that relationship because you want to have that relationship in place when times are difficult so that that companies know what information trustees are asking for um, and that they're ready to provide that information because you know examples like supply chain disruption you may or may not know where the widgets for a factory come from or if they come from Ukraine for example so it's it's really helpful to have that dialogue with sponsors at any time but particularly in times of uncertainty. Steve, if I can come to you on this, there's a host of other factors, of course, which are affecting pension schemes trying to go under these tranche 17 valuations in particular. Inflation is is only one of them. If we were talking about inflation, and did you have a general 
impression of how prepared schemes are by way of hedging or other preparations to actually shoulder the burden that inflation is placing upon them, and of course the the, the other burdens that the pensions regulator mentions. Is there a general yeah, impression of the state of scheme preparation? I think it's a bit of a gamble, actually, to be fair. It's a, it's a bit of a casino pensions, I'm going to call it, casino pensions, which basically means, you know, inflation is very volatile at the moment, as we've seen in the last few months. You know, looking at long-term valuations and support of the schemes, you've got to think, well, you know, you've got to gamble on a particular inflationary measure. And actually, I think it's very, very hard for trustees and obviously harder for sponsors to, um, you know, gauge what that's going to be. And in some respects, you've got to view it as a bet. And, you know, going forward, how much does that inflation affect the liabilities of your particular scheme? Because different schemes have got different investment models and different pathways. But, you know, if they get inflation right on their bet, then they're going to do very, very well. If they get it wrong, then it's going to go from bad to worse. But, you know, Emily, myself, you, Benjamin, we haven't got a crystal ball. It's very, very difficult. You know, is this going to be a, you know, a short term glitch maybe for the next six months to a year? Is it going to continue for many years to come? Uh, you know, pensions will be very happy. Discretionary increases will be uh, quite expensive for sponsors. But if you're looking at inflationary pressures, then I think trustees have got to take a view. They've got to talk to their advisors and listen to the research. And they've got to take a view. And this is what they do all the time with their liabilities. You know, what are the longer term liabilities, long, long term impact going to be? But I think on inflation, it is a bit of a gamble. Nobody really knows where it's going. Hopefully, Emily will agree. I think one one of the things that we've seen with hedging is that some schemes have gone down one route, some have gone down another route, and that's created quite a polarising effect where you've got some schemes that are well-funded with good covenants, other schemes that are poorly funded with weaker covenants. So you get this, this ever-widening gap, which when you've got the new funding code coming up that's trying to sort of even the playing field, it makes it really hard for the regulator to come up with one set of rules that's going to be applicable to everyone. And that's why the sort of the focus on risk rather than box ticking, is, is very much where we're focused at the moment. Excellent. And to close this section off then, we've mentioned that trustees are having to undergo tranche 17 valuations in this broad context of uncertainty. If you were both to give trustees some advice on how to proceed, I know the pensions regulator did this as well with the guidance it set out in the annual funding statement, but if there was one key takeaway or key message that you would give to trustees about how to deal with these valuations in this context, what would that be? Be, and I will go to Steve first, if you don't mind, put you on the spot. Well, thanks, Ben. That's very kind. As I said earlier, I would literally take advice. That's all I would say. You've got a number of traditional boards made up of employer-nominated, member-nominated trustees who effectively, as we all know, are lay trustees. They've got to take advice. That's the bottom line. And whether you're Schroeder's or Aegon or Waverton or whoever it is, it's taking their sort of research at point blank, because everybody uh, is taking um, that sort of risk and that view. Just listen to the advisors, take a view and go with that view. That's what I would say. Excellent. Or indeed, you could listen to the Pensions Expert podcast. And uh, Emily, I will go to you next. I mean, if what, what key message, key takeaway would you give? I'd say play the long game. Don't knee jerk to the short term and focus on the fact that pension schemes are very long term liabilities and something that you need to be thinking about over a prolonged period, think about your journey plan, think about your end game, think about how you're going to get there. None of that's going to happen within the next three years. Well, Ben, that's an interesting point, Emily, because, you know, when you actually look at the reality of, of active members today, who potentially, Ben, could be your age, and you've got a, a wife, say, who's two, three, four years younger, 
you look at these liabilities out, if you look at the cash flows of that liability, that is many, 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 many years to come. So Emily's right. Take the long, long term view. These schemes are here to provide long, long term benefits. And with a, with a fair wind and with advice, I think um, trustees will get there and employers will get there. Fingers crossed. That's an optimistic takeaway. Well, on the mention of uh, of relatively young people, I think that's provided us with a happy segue into our next topic of the day, which is that the youngest ever accredited trustee uh, has called on the industry to embrace tech. And he is indeed young enough to make me feel old. So I do harbour a grudge against uh, Mr. Lewis Drew. But as we've mentioned, he's called on the industry to do more to embrace tech. And that is the topic for our next section. He mentions the pensions dashboard, amongst other things, saying that if adoption had come earlier or people had been slightly keener, the process would perhaps have been slightly easier. I suppose the, the beginning question, the initial question, and Emily, I'll come to you first on this one, if you don't mind. Beyond what the industry is currently doing with dashboards, which is a huge workload, of course, can the what more can the industry do to embrace tech beyond that? There's so much that can be done with technology, and it's it's about getting the pace right so that you don't launch a load of technology that's that's not done properly. So, you know, we're, we're all here for the members. Member interfaces is one area that you're talking about with the dashboards. And that's it's not just about throwing information at people. It's about education. It's about engagement. All of those things together are important. In my role, I spend a lot more time with trustees. So I'm thinking about what trustees can have at their fingertips to make their jobs easier for them. There's loads of of sort of smart techie models out there which will help trustees with their training. So ones that you can use to to sort of work through scenarios to to get a sense of how you'd behave in a real real situation, skills gaps, IRM models that help you understand how all of the integrated risks work together. Some great models for TCFD analysis. So we've got one that that we work with. So there's some really good models out there. But with any of these things, you need to be mindful that no model's perfect and that you need to think about some risks can't easily be modelled. Covenant's a, a good example. So you can you can use tech for, for great benchmarking, but you still need a, a sort of qualitative human thought overlay. And that's it's that sort of blending of making the most of technology at the right pace, but still with the human thought that goes into it. Sure thing. And Steve, coming to you on this. Is the impression right if people were to take away the, the idea that the pension sector generally has been a bit of a laggard when it comes to embracing tech, because we, we, we are all talking about the dashboard now, but arguably we should have been talking about the dashboard a long, long time ago. Is the impression correct that the pensions industry has been lagging when it comes to the embracing of tech or has that changed more in recent years and is it, is it starting to catch up? I think it's starting to catch up. I think Emily and I would probably say that uh, the industry's had a lot to deal with in the last five, ten years. Most importantly, ultra-enrolment has been quite an interesting solution, delivering 10 million people with uh, with pensions. So that's been very, very important, get that over the line. I think to do dashboard at the same time would have been really, really hard at the same time, number one. Uh, number two, I think, you know, I've come from a background also of, of DB schemes, final salary schemes, and Emily obviously will probably uh, recognise this. I think a lot of administrators, a lot of trustees spend an inordinate amount of time on audited report and accounts, chairman's statement, funding statements, uh, valuations, blah, 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 blah. I think we are now in the position with the development of technology to try and digitize these things. I think if, you know, Emily, maybe, I don't know, put this to you, but, you know, if you had a a pension scheme with 5,000 members, how many people have actually read the report and accounts or how many people have actually read the chairman's statement? It would be a very, very, very small number. So maybe schemes should start embracing things like apps, you know, whether you're 
25, 35 or 60, you know what an app is. I think maybe embracing app technology would be a good move in the right direction for trustees to maybe post all their documentation on an app. That would be a good step in the right direction. Um, so, you know, that's number one. From the member's point of view, same sort of thing. I think modeling tools should be far more sophisticated today than they have been. And I think, you know, I would call upon the providers, especially to um, embrace new modeling tools, which will include holistic modeling tools. So it's not just about their bit. There's no point having a modeling tool which says, oh, wow, I've got three grand in my Nest or People's Pension or Smart or Cushion or whatever it is, Pension. It's what else have I got and how can I embrace that technology? So leading towards dashboard, trying to see it all in one place, trying to get providers to provide, again, app technology to digitize the whole process. We did a um, pension playpen series a couple of weeks ago. And in Australia, you can consolidate your pot with three clicks. Now, I think that's a great challenge for the UK industry. So wouldn't it be great if once the dashboard does come in and I, I get all the stresses that that brings, but wouldn't it be great if we could lead to a three-click consolidation platform in the UK, which would be great. So there's a lot more opportunity for apps and trustees and sponsors to uh, engage and use apps for the new world. That's what I think. Excellent. Uh, Emily, any, any closing thoughts on, on what you've just said there, especially the, the embracing of apps, which, which does seem like a, an area that you know could pension schemes really could get on board with much more than they are at the moment, doesn't it? I mean, would you concur that that's, that's a way, a, the way forward, if not a way forward? Definitely. Anything that is, that's easy to access, uh, engaging, sounds perfect. There is that, as I said at the beginning, that, that sort of balance between information, education and engagement and, you know, making sure that it's not so easy to just transfer your, your pension that people are at risk of pension scammers and, um, and making sort of poorly informed decisions. So you still, you still need the sort of the governance wrapper around it. But there's definitely a lot more that we can do to, to get people more engaged in their pensions. To be sure. In that case, we'll move on to the final topic of the day. And I think engagement is probably going to pop up again when we come to discuss the future of ESG disclosures. I think there's some research out recently. We certainly reported that last week around 53% of trustee boards now consider ESG an important agenda item. That's a research produced by the Pensions Management Institute. And it's up markedly from 2020, when ESG was important for just 29% of trustee boards. There are, of course, a host of new regulations and rules coming in. It seems we're reporting on a new set of rules each and every week. So I get the broad-based question with which to start. And I will come to you first, Steve, if you don't mind, on this future of ESG disclosure. The broad-based question is, what is the future of ESG disclosure? There are a host of new rules in place now with the TCFD, aren't there? So what are we expecting next in terms of regulatory changes and all the rest? Well, I think, um, I think number one, I totally agree with this the direction of travel. I think it's becoming more and more popular. And I think if you did a survey again in another 12 months, Ben, it would show even more improvement. ESG is very topical. And yeah, we want to save our planet and our investments into pensions, which represent billions and billions of pounds, we should start thinking about the direction of travel and where we invest. So it's all good. I think looking at the, uh, the, the future of technology and ESG, the ideal would be to have some sort of ESG rating system in place for all funds. And a lot of master trusts use default funds, but wouldn't it be great if they could actually produce an ESG rating per default fund and then when you're on a dashboard you can see all of your pension pots so you can see your your aviva pot your now pot your cardano pot your royal london pot all in one place and every single default fund 
would have an ESG rating. And then, you know, that, that would be really, really cool piece of kit to have, I think. And I think the technology, joking aside, I think the technology, Ben, is actually there today. I think if people could just embrace it and just start thinking about developing projects in that space, I think that is easily achievable in the next 12 months. Do you agree, Emily? Uh, yeah, I, I think the the disclosure is really important for getting that engagement and easy to understand disclosure is everything here because it's it's such a hugely complicated subject. One thing that's uh, so we we get more involved in is the analysis behind the disclosure, and that's the this sort of huge area that that kind of needs to be built to get that disclosure right. So all of the analysis that sits behind TCFD reporting. There's all of the different scenarios that you need to work through, think uh, how they impact investment, covenant, funding risks. And so there's the disclosure element, but I'd say there's also the analysis and the decision-making that goes on behind the scenes as well. And I think it's really important that trustees don't see TCFD disclosure requirements as, as a tick box exercise, that it's actually done as a, as a useful exercise of itself. So, you know, understanding those risks, how the different scenarios play out, which are the ones that might be problematic. Going back to the topic at the start of uncertainty, you can't plan for all of these scenarios and you don't know for sure which one is going to be the one that happens. So having a sense of which are the problematic ones, what are the lead indicators of those scenarios, how you can monitor for them, and then how you can adapt quickly and make the right decisions at the right time based on the best information. So I think there's there's sort of two elements to it. That the disclosure is forcing people to do the analysis and that analysis is really important and driving good decision making. And then that needs to, to sort of link back together with the disclosure again. Sure thing. And Steve, coming back to you finally on, on this topic, is it possible to, to have, I mean, you stated the, the ambition that it could be achieved within 12 months to have disclosure ratings, for example, on default funds, on via technology, via apps, via dashboards, whatever. Is it possible to have those before all of the background work is done on regulations and analysis? Or is actually the, the, the option to display these ratings almost an incentive for to do the analysis more quickly? In other words, can, can you have demand-based regulatory improvements or do the regulatory improvements have to be there before you start to show customers potential customers at least what ESG scores any default fund would have yeah I think it's a bit of a chicken and egg isn't it but at the end of the day uh, that's the desire that's the end game you know Emily's right that there will be lots of analytics that have to take place behind the scenes to produce that information and again some providers will be on board some asset managers will be on board at various sort of uh, states so some will move at a fast pace and some will be less but I think if one focused on the larger master trusts, for example, in DC land, you know, I think there could be a lot of gains in that particular space because that's millions and millions and millions of people who more and more have views on ESG. So, OK, maybe 12 months for some might be achievable, but it may have to be longer. But wouldn't it be nice to dovetail that with dashboard itself? So that would be a perfect uh, scenario to, um, you know, use those open systems to actually pass that information through as well. Sure thing. We'll watch this space for that, I suppose. That brings us to the close of the principal part of the programme, but there is, of course, always a pensions angle. And I think, Emily, that you have one for us today. So do you want to take us away? I do. So Steve hinted at it with his uh, chicken and egg comments earlier. Um, this was a, a headline that I picked up that said, South Korea's two Olympic gold medalists have been awarded free fried chicken for life to celebrate their achievements at the Winter Games Olympics this year, which I thought was a, a lovely story hearing about a different type of pension. Although one of the things that worried me from the story was that apparently they're only getting free chicken until they're 60 years of age. 
So a chicken pension that only lasts until you're 60 seemed like quite a flawed pension to me. I like that the low age range is the thing that makes that flawed, not the payment in chicken. <laughs> will they still be Olympians if they make use of all the fried chicken? Surely that would have some deleterious effects on their sporting performance, would it not? You, you might need to do quite a lot of training to burn it off. <laughs> Excellent. Well, that does bring us to the close of the programme. So uh, thank you to our listeners. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. As I said before listening, thank you to Emily Andrews, to Steve for joining us. We'll be back again in two weeks' time, and we hope to see you then.